If you have your Bible this morning, turn with me to Mark chapter 8. The plants in uh, front of me this morning are in memory of uh, Jerry Rezac, who uh, passed away this last Wednesday. And this last Wednesday was Jerry's 90th birthday. Uh, so he died on his 90th birthday. And his family noted that in 1933, when he was born, October 18th was also on a Wednesday. He was born on a Wednesday, and he died on a Wednesday, um, 90 years later. Um, We'll be remembering... uh, his wife, Nyla, in prayer, in one sense, her life uh, got a lot easier. She was caring for Jerry at home. He had Alzheimer's disease, and it was quite a challenge. Uh, but on the other hand, her life got a lot harder because they've been married for 70 years, and now he's not there anymore. And so... Uh, that's how it goes, right? It's the paradoxes of the uh, way our experience runs. But do be praying for Nyla as she goes through this time of transition, which will be a, a, a big transition. Let's stand together. Uh, Mark eight twenty-two to 26. And they came to Bethsaida. And some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, do you see anything? And he looked up. And said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes. His sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And he sent him to his home, saying, Do not even enter into the village. Let's look to the Lord in prayer. Oh, Father, there are times in life, as the psalmist says, when you seem far away, And we ask you, we cry out to you, why, O Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? We wonder. We know in one sense that you never do. But we know by experience that it certainly seems like you do. 
and it feels like you do. And you leave us feeling like we are alone in a dangerous place where the wicked hotly pursue the poor. And our prayer is that as violent people carry out violence, that you would cause them to be caught in their own schemes and that those breeding violence would bring violence upon themselves so that they might be eliminated, so they might learn. Lord, we look out and we see people in our culture who pay you no attention at all. And as the psalmist says, and yet their way seems to prosper at all times. They're in charge of our politics. They're in charge of our mass communication. They're in charge of most of our higher educational institutes. The godless are completely in charge. And they believe that they'll always be in charge, that they'll never be moved. And they curse your name and they tell lies and they plot against righteousness in a hundred different ways. And all around the world, many who claim your name are crushed and sink down in prisons, in torture, in death, and in loss. And Lord, we acknowledge all of this with the psalmist, but also acknowledge with him that we know that we are confident, as he says at the end of Psalm 10, that you, the Lord, are king forever. The nations will eventually perish. But, O oh Lord, you hear. You watch out for your people. You will strengthen our hearts in the midst of trouble. We ask that you would incline your ear to our prayer as we find ourselves in times of loss, in times of fear, in times of loneliness, in times of injustice. We rest all of our hope upon you and look to a time when there will be no more terror on the earth, but only your peace through the Lord Jesus Christ. We hope in such times and are sure of them in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. This is, without much question, uh, one of the strangest little paragraphs in all of Mark's gospel. Uh, something quite unique happens. Nobody knows exactly what it means, 
but it's unique, uh, for it's the only place in the gospel accounts where Jesus heals somebody in stages. And if you think to yourself, well, I'm sure there's some scholars somewhere who know exactly the significance of this, um, I can tell you that if they do, they're not the ones who wrote about it. Um, Because the ones who wrote about it uh, really didn't have anything very helpful to say other than to point things out like, well, this is the only place in the the Gospels where something like this happens, uh, uh, which is good to know, but not terribly significant. Um, uh, So what what is going on here will be our question for this morning that will try to give some semblance of an answer to, uh, but it did make me think of something important to think about really all the time, every, every day, when you come across a little piece of scripture like this one. Um, one of the most striking things, I remember the first times over 40 years ago, the first time I ever read through Calvin's Institutes of the Christian Religion, which our men's group is in uh, right now, it's, you're almost, you know, Calvin is supposedly quite famous for, you know, the doctrine of predestination. Well, you don't really get to that in the Institutes until you're almost three-quarters of the way through it, somewhere between two-thirds and three-quarters of the way through it. But, so he was about a lot more than that. But he knew, even 500 years ago, nobody really wants to hear about that or talk about that. And so he wrote this little paragraph making a defense for why he would still write about it. And in doing so, it's just a magnificent little paragraph, the kind of thing that you might put in the front of your Bible to to review every day before you read your Bible. Because here's what he wrote. For Scripture is the school of the Holy Spirit in which nothing is omitted that is both useful and necessary to know, so nothing is taught but what is expedient to know. Therefore, we must guard against believers, depriving believers of anything that God has disclosed. Scripture is the school of the Holy Spirit. What a great thing to remind yourself of when you, when you pick the Bible up in the morning. I'm entering now into the school of the Holy Spirit. The school of the Holy Spirit in two senses. One, the, the text on the page was breathed out through prophets and apostles. It's God-breathed. It's, as, as we say, it's inspired. But also, it's the Holy Spirit that illuminates us to understand what's on the page. And so we, we prayerfully read the words that are on the page, and in so doing, 
we enroll ourselves in the school of the Holy Spirit. Now, all of that to say, this little paragraph is part of that school. Uh, so this, this, this little paragraph, Mark 8, 22 to 26, is a little piece of the curriculum within the school of the Holy Spirit. And they came to Bethsaida. And some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when, they had, when, when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, Do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see people. But they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes, and he opened his eyes, and his sight was fully restored. And he saw everything clearly, and he sent him to his home, saying, Do not even enter the village. Now, the one thing that's crystal clear in this passage is that you you end on something that's exceedingly valuable, and that's our thesis for this morning. Clear spiritual sight is a great blessing. Uh, And that's what Jesus gives this guy. He gives him physical sight, but as we'll see, He's, he's certainly talking about more than that. We'll look at this from three angles, each one pretty briefly this morning. Number one, Jesus appear, appears to approach blindness with humbling methods. Jesus appears to approach blindness with humbling methods. Um, they ask him, would you, would you touch this guy and heal him? And, and Jesus takes him by the hand and leads him out of the village to an isolated place and spits in his eyes. Now, if you think about where your eyes are, then you'll get the sense, and he spits in his face. And he spits in his face. Um, and then places his hands upon him. Now that, again, that does not, in, in one sense, that doesn't jump off the page as, is this really about humility? Well, I'm not sure, but I think it might be. The text that was read uh, by Nate earlier in the service from John 9, uh, has two things in common with our text. It's a, it's a healing of blindness, and it involves spitting. Um, uh, that time, though, Jesus spits on the ground, and he makes clay, and then he puts the clay in the blind man's eyes and tells him to go wash in the pool of Siloam. 
But everybody agrees about this in John's gospel. When that happens in in John 9, you are supposed to be remembering 2 Kings 5, where Naaman is healed of leprosy. And the method of his healing is to be sent to wash in a certain place. I'm just going to read the account to you. Um, um, uh, reading into it from the beginning of the chapter, 2 Kings 5, starting in verse 1. Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Assyria, of Syria, was a great man with his master and in high favor because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria, including, so by him, uh, the Lord had subjected his own people uh, to Syria. And hence, uh, as we'll see, the king of Israel is petrified of, uh, of the Lord of, of Syria. He was a mighty man of valor, but he was a leper. Now the Syrians, on one of their raids, had carried off a little girl from the land of Israel. And she worked in the service of Naaman's wife. And she said to her mistress, that is to Naaman's wife, Would that my lord were with the prophet who is in Samaria. He would cure him of his leprosy. So Naaman went in and told his lord. Thus and so spoke this little girl from the land of Israel. And the king of Syria said, Go now, and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. And so he went, taking with him ten talents of silver, six thousand shekels of gold, ten changes of clothing. And he brought the letter to the king of Israel, which read, When this letter reaches you, know that I have sent to you Naaman, my servant, that you may cure him of his leprosy. And when the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes and said, Am I God that I can kill and make alive? That This man sends word to me to cure a man of his leprosy? Only consider and see how he is seeking a quarrel with me. But when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, he sent to the king, saying, Why have you torn your clothes? Let him come now to me, that he may know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman came with his horses and chariots and stood at the door of Elisha's house. And Elisha sent a messenger to him, saying, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh shall be restored, and you shall be clean. But Naaman was angry and went away, saying, Behold, 
I thought he would surely come out to me and stand and call upon the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. That is, I knew just how this was going to go. He's going to come out. He's going to say, like they do on television, leprosy be gone. And then my leprosy will be gone. And that's how you do it. Anybody knows that. That's how it should go. But he didn't even come out. He sends a servant out. Wash in the river Jordan. Naaman goes on. Are not Abana and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than the waters of Israel? Conquered Israel, subservient Israel, stupid Israel. Couldn't I wash in them and be clean? And so he turned and went away in rage. In other words, he says to the servant of Elisha, forget you. But his servants came near and said to him, My father, it is a great word that the prophet has spoken to you. Will you not do it? Has he actually said to you, Wash and be clean? Did you hear him? In other words, did you hear him? He says, If you'll just humble yourself and go dip seven times in the river Jordan, You'll be clean. Why wouldn't you go at least try it? That's what he said. So he went down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan, according to the word of the man of God. And his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. Now, at the heart of that story, clearly, is the crucial nature of humility in the process of receiving this blessing from God. And it's similar in the John text, right? Where again, there, what did they expect Jesus to do? Uh, Let there be sight, and there was sight. But instead, he spits on the ground, he makes clay, he puts the clay on the guy's eyes, and now says, and now you have to walk across town to the pool of Siloam and wash your eyes out in the water there, and you shall see. And so, and so it happened. And so it was done. Now, in the context of John 8, I mean, we are, this, this story just drops, it doesn't just drop in out of nowhere. We've just been talking about spiritual sight in the previous paragraph. Pretty prominently so, and actually pretty ominously so. Not only spiritual sight, but a sort of spiritual sight that's not worth much. And Jesus is recommending a lot better Sight, right? So we looked at last week. So the, you know, the, um, 
They, they, they forget bread. Jesus tries to talk about them, warns them about the leaven of the Pharisees. They say, oh, good grief, here we go about the, the Pharisees and Herod when we're all wrapped up. We forgot bread. And then he says to them, having eyes, don't you see? A reference back to Jeremiah 5.21. Ominous reference, right? Because those who don't see in Jeremiah 5.21 are going into exile. Uh, they're, Israel's. they're Israelites who don't really see much of anything. Uh, their sight is so useless that they just about might as well be blind. Having eyes, they do not see um, and we see, I think, in this story, as certainly in the Naaman story, as well as in the... That a piece of this approach is you have to humble yourself a bit if you're going to end up with some spiritual sight or with physical sight in, in this sense or with cleansed leprosy in Second Kings. Secondly, Jesus appears to grant limited sight for a time. And he went and he spit in his eyes and laid hands on him and asked him, Do you see anything? And he looked and said, I see people, but they are like trees walking. Which I think we're going to believe, are supposed to believe, is an improvement. He was stone cold blind before. But now he goes, No, 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 I do. I see something. I see something. I can see people, but I see them so indistinctly that they are like trees walking. Now, I think it's plain that the point of this story is not that you say at this point, huh, not like Jesus to miss like that, but I suppose he's truly a man, so maybe he, he did. He, so this, this was a misfired miracle. Um, you know, he tried to heal the guy's sight. He got, he got about halfway there came up a little short, um, but fortunately, if you do not succeed, you know, try, try again. Uh, I don't think that's the point. I don't think that's the point. In other words, you're not supposed to read this story and imagine that, that you know, that Jesus is going to say at the end of it, as uh, Donna Adams used to say in the old Gismart, you know, missed it by this much. Uh, no, 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 that is not at all. What's going on here? So what is? What is going on here? Uh, And clearly what's going on here is this is intentional. That he heals the guy part way. Um, He intentionally heals the guy part way. Now again, context is king. You can't, I don't, I don't think, I don't think this, I don't think in isolation, this story sails by itself. I think you have to keep in mind what just happened in the previous paragraph, where the disciples clearly have a certain sort of spiritual sight. But their sight is so poor 
that if they're distracted by something like, we forgot bread, and Jesus says, I've got an important lesson to teach you, they say, very, very nice, Jesus, but you don't realize right now, we're kind of focused on the fact that we forgot the bread. So we really don't got time for your little lessons about the Pharisees and the Herodians. Well, when you feel that way about the Word of God, if you are spiritually alive at all, this would have to be true of you. You sort of see, but you see at the level of somebody who sees trees like men walking. You don't really, you don't really get it. You are like in the previous paragraph. You're like the Israelites in the ancient world who have eyes, but they don't really see. They have ears, but they don't really hear. And you ought to really be praying for yourself. Something like Psalm 119, verse 18, right? Open my eyes that I might see the wonderful things that are in your instruction or in your law. Well, who prays that prayer? Born-again people pray that prayer. Nobody else is really interested in praying a prayer like that. Born-again people pray that prayer. So in other words, born-again people often often acknowledge, in their spiritual experience at least, that they have quite imperfect sight uh, that really needs improvement. Uh, and, and you know this, because you can often, in a, in, in a pinch, in trouble, we can read the most comforting words in the Bible, and we can read them ten times, and still not be very comforted by them. Right? We got trouble, we did something dumb, we wish we weren't where we are, we, whatever it is. And then there were, and somebody comes along and says, well, you know, here's the thing. You should have this confidence. God sees to it that everything that enters your life works together for good. If you're among those who love him, you're called according to his purpose. So it's going to be all right. And we say back, it doesn't feel all right to me. In other words, that's just not working for me right now. Which is another way of saying, you can't always trust what God says. You shouldn't let what God says comfort you too much or you're going to be You're going to look like a fool if you do. Well, that's not clear spiritual sight talking. But that is often our experience. We often don't really pull all that much comfort out of what God says when he says comforting things because we see what he says as somebody sees Trees as men walking. Um, And so the story goes on to say, here's what you want. 
You want this clear spiritual sight. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes, and his sight was restored. And he saw everything clearly. And he saw everything clearly. Um, now again, is, it, is this just about this guy's physical eyesight? It's clearly about that, right? This really happens. This guy was really blind, and then he got partially able to see, and then he got fully able to see. But it's about more than that, right, right, right? You go back to the previous paragraph. What does Jesus want for his disciples? He wants them to see all things clearly. He wants them to see that, you know what? Forgetting the bread is of no real significance. But listening to Jesus is always of the greatest significance. And if Jesus gives you a warning, you ought to be deeply warned. And you will be if you have any kind of spiritual sight at all. The words of Jesus will carry great weight with you if you see them for what they really are. To go back where we started, if you understand them to actually be part of the school of the Holy Spirit. And that's what you're looking at. When you have your Bible open in the morning, you're looking at the school of the Holy Spirit. But often, like the disciples back in Mark 8.18, having eyes do you not see, having ears do you not hear, don't you remember? all that God has done. Don't you remember all that Jesus is? Don't you remember what it means to have the word of God? And as I say, that's an echo of Jeremiah 5, 21. Hear this, O foolish and senseless people who have eyes but do not see and have ears who do not hear. Do you not fear me, declares the Lord? Do you not tremble before me, and we say, often not. And the reason is that we see men, but they look like trees walking. So you need to get you need to go get an eye exam and prove your eyesight. I was recently in to see Vance Thompson's clinic to figure out what they want to do about my cataracts. And before you get to a doctor, there's a tech that, you know, puts your face in all these lenses and, uh, and, you, and, and you look. And, and, and it's been a while since I've been into a test like that. So I, did, I don't remember uh, uh, in the past somebody saying what this girl kept uh, repeatedly saying to me. She said, uh, read the lowest line that you can read clearly without guessing. You know, as a, now maybe she doesn't say that to the average person. She's, oh, this is kind of a moron. He thinks this is a test. <laughs> so he's going to act like we're not trying to actually measure his eyesight, but see how well he can do on the test. So he might just sort of take a random guess to see if he can go a line lower than, than he really can. Um, uh, but uh, so, so 
Read the lowest line you can read without guessing. Um, Well, isn't, I mean, in the spiritual realm, that would be wonderful, wonderful advice, right? Very popular line you hear people say, you've heard your friends say, you've heard relatives say, right? I like to think God is... I like to take a guess that God is something like this. I like to think that God must be whatever I have floating around on, in my head, you know, on a Thursday afternoon. That's absurd. That's absurd. And it's exceedingly popular and exceedingly widespread. Um, Jesus says, no, no, you want, you want to have your sight corrected so that read the lowest line that you can read clearly and bang, you read the lowest line. Like, who? You know, what are you doing in here? What are you doing in here? You got eyesight like that. You seem to see everything clearly, uh, which was not the outcome of my exam. Um, but you seem to see everything clearly. Now we're about to go to the communion table where we often read, and in fact, almost always. Remind ourselves that Paul said in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty eight, Let a person examine himself, and then, and so, let him eat the bread and drink the cup. In the context of our text, you might say that same thing this way. Let a person give themselves a sort of spiritual eye exam. Do you see things at all clearly? Do you see clearly that the only hope that you have in the world is the cross of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins? Do you see that clearly? Or might you be tempted to say, well, you know, I think I'll be all right. I've always tried to be a good person. If you're even close to anything in that neighborhood, in that county, in that state, in in that region, of the spiritual country. You're blind. You're blind. To see it all clearly is to see that the only hope for you is the forgiveness of sins in the cross. But more than that, do you see clearly, do you see clearly that you have to be willing to let God shape your life by his word? You can't just say, You know, I would like to go to heaven when I die, but I want to fit right in with American culture, no matter how many compromises I have to make of biblical truth to do so. I'm going to fit in. I'm going to say what other people want to hear. That's just me. And Paul would say to you, then pass the thing by. 
Because you don't see anything for what it really is. You don't see what a deadly thing that is. To be like that. To think that way. To imagine. To imagine that that'll work. So if that's where you're at, then, then you pass the table by. Uh, now, of course, uh, everybody who's invited to the table is all wrapped up in sin as well. So what's the difference? The difference is that you know it, that you confess it, and that you see the table as precisely what you need. I need the reminder. I need to come back. I need to call myself continually to fresh repentance. And what a wonderful thing you see when we do it all together in one room as a congregation. We come and we say, so who are we really? Um, here's what Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 11, and ask the men who will serve communion this morning to come as I read. For I received from the Lord that which I also have given to you, that the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Likewise also took the cup after the supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it for my remembrance. For as often as you may eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Do you see clearly that Jesus is your only hope? Do you see clearly that he needs to function as your Lord as well as your Savior? If so, as even if you find you're stumbling along trying to follow him in that way, of course you are. Everybody is. All believers stumbling along confessing their sins daily. But the table's for you, and I welcome you to it. Men would stand, we'll ask the Lord's blessing upon the bread. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that you have told us that you did not spare your own son but you delivered him up for us all, promising us that with him you will freely give us all things, forgiveness, life, life eternal, persevering faith, all things. We plead for these things on the basis of Christ's broken body and death. In Jesus' name, amen.